In breaking news, it was recommended that he could make contact with some sailors in the brothel. And welcome to For You The War's Over, a podcast all about Second World War Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we're looking at Guardsman John Elwyn Jones of the 2nd Battalion of the Welsh Guards. And we have a Dunkirk capture. So it's another early one. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting one, this one, because we mostly look at people who have been fighting with the British Expeditionary Force in France already. When I say fighting, they've been over as part of the phony war. This is quite obviously they've been held back in reserve because he was actually making his way to France whilst the plans were actually being drawn up for the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force. Okay. So we'll look at a little bit of his background first before we get into this. So he was a farmer's son from Dolgethly in Wales. I've seen several reports to be kind that he didn't have a particularly good time at school and he actually left school at the age of 14 and whilst he was an incredible character academically he could have done with being there a bit longer basically having worked on the land for a few years decided to enlist and he enlisted into the regular army in on the 1st of August 1939 so ahead of the actual declaration of war. Now, his report is interesting because it says he was ordered to France with my battalion about the 22nd of May 1940 and when midway across the channel, we were told that our task was to defend Boulogne. Now, we obviously have covered the phony war and everything else that went on before it and then obviously the German invasion of Belgium, Netherlands and France on the 10th of May. So that made me think, well, when did the plans for Operation Dynamo really get drawn together? And it's on the 20th. That's when sat down in Britain where we really need to sort something out. So at that point, Churchill said, look, we need to start building up the ships. We need to start amassing these things. We need to get a plan together to start drawing people back. Obviously, the Germans were advancing en masse. But as we all know, they stopped around the 23rd and they let the Luftwaffe go in to try and annihilate what was left that was between them and the beaches. So to already be on a boat to France to add more men in on the 22nd was a little bit interesting from what I could see because effectively with the BAEF trapped by the 21st, the Germans holding back from the 23rd, what on earth are you going to do? Obviously Boulogne is a coastal port, so it's a point that particularly is useful for evacuating troops out. So they're obviously going to try and defend that and support that, but you're deliberately putting more people in. And then I looked, there was another plan drawn up by Churchill on the 22nd of May for the BAEF to coordinate with the French First Army to try and reconnect with the rest of the French forces that had been spread all across that part of France by the mass German push. The plan would end up being abandoned completely on the 25th of May with the fall of Boulogne because you basically were left with just Calais and Dunkirk completely surrounded. But it was interesting that troops were diverted down to that because he goes on to say, upon reaching Boulogne, my company was ordered to take up a position outside the town on what I think was the Boulogne to Desiree's road. Now, this is about five kilometres outside Boulogne. I can get it's a defensive position but it's trying to keep a gateway open for all of these troops to come up. At the time, they were trying to flood canal systems and everything else to create a natural barrier. But obviously, the Germans had stopped. Flooding the canal does not make a difference if you're being attacked by the Luftwaffe because they're going to go in and pulverise whatever's left. So this is a case of putting a massive battalion of men in to defend a port that would actually fall the next day. And you're creating the situation even worse because they didn't get out and they didn't connect with the French. And as we all see, 
from the 26th, the mass evacuation starts from Dunkirk and they have to try and get the people out there. So it's seemingly a very chaotic time, but obviously with some direction to go, oh, let's move troops there, let's move troops there. But an interesting situation in that his fighting time is actually literally a couple of days in France, whereas all the ones we've looked at before have gone over in September and have taken up defensive positions much further to the east and sat it out for several months. So picking up on his report, he says, at about 0500 hours on the 23rd of May, we were attacked and there was heavy fighting. In the afternoon, we were ordered to make our way back to Boulogne, every man for himself. So we're already seeing that it's starting to fall apart here. Nine of us deployed into a house quite near our original position. The Germans shelled the house and it was burnt down. We crawled into a hen coop in the yard, but the Germans trained a field gun onto this and shouted out that they would blow it to pieces if we did not come out. We therefore had no other option but to surrender. What gets me is if your house has just been burnt down, hiding in the hen coop's not going to give you that much additional protection. Not a lot, no. No, not at all. It says, We were led a few hundred yards to a company headquarters where some German officers attempted to interrogate us. We refused all information and the interrogation was not pressed. We were then marched on, stopping first for a night in a village and sleeping in a church. The next day we were moved on and were kept in the square of a town, wired off and converted into a temporary prisoner of war cage. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. We've seen people being marched forward, but obviously they're hoovering up people quite quickly. On the second day, all of the officer prisoner of wars were moved off. And on the morning of the third day, we were marched having been given no food through drenching rain, which was then about the 27th of May. Having been moved on, we ended up sleeping in fields, and there were thousands of us by now. We had a plan of rushing the guard and trying to break away, but it proved hopeless. So he obviously gave it a go, or somebody gave it a go for Mm -hmm. it to be hopeless. The following day, we were marched on where we slept in a sort of factory. So obviously being taken further and further and further away from the front, but Mm -hmm. there's obviously not the infrastructure there. Interesting that you've got a caged square Mm -hmm. to hold some of them, but it just shows, in a way, the massive task the Germans had to try and mop these people up and get them as far away from the front as possible. Yeah, certainly I think the caged square is indicative of the improvisation that the Germans had to do upon the mass capture of certainly British and Allied forces. Obviously the French had the advantage of just sort of filtering off home, whereas the captured British Expeditionary Force troops had to be put somewhere. They couldn't just skedaddle off across the channel despite some of their best efforts. And so, yeah, as I say, the caging off of these town squares is indicative of the improvisation that the Germans are going through because they've suddenly found themselves with a mass of prisoners of war to deal with. I also thought it was really interesting that they said that there was a plan to rush the guard. Mm. What I find quite interesting about that is, as you say, not only did someone at least try it, and the the report itself doesn't suggest that it was Jones that was one of them. No, no, it doesn't. Um, In fact, to the point that he actually declares that a different effort was his first escape attempt. Mm. So I think we can take from this that he wasn't one of those that tried to escape, but clearly someone did. But nonetheless, I think it is indicative of a certain escape-mindedness. Yes. And that certainly comes out about Jones, because he was to make many escape attempts. He, He certainly was. And indeed, he was to make his first escape attempt fairly soon after his capture. I mean, he was captured on the 23rd of May and he was to make his first escape attempt on the 29th of May. So only six days after his initial capture, he's already trying to make his first escape. That's pretty good. Mm, It's not bad. So when I say there's a certain indication that there was an escape-mindedness in Jones, it's immediate. He's sniffing it out from the very first moment. So picking up from where you left off in the factory, he says that the next day I told Lance Corporal's Price, Coop 
and pedal that I was going to try and break away. The Germans had guards going up and down the column all the time on motorbikes. When two of the guards were not looking, I darted into a hedge. This was about three o'clock on the 29th of May. I remained in the hedge until 2200 hours and I then headed southwest by the stars. Interesting, actually. Navigation yeah. by stars. So yep. he's got no escape materials, got no compass. Well, I mean, obviously, when I say escape materials, he's not carrying anything that he could utilise for escaping and, and navigating because, obviously, he's, they're heading into a war zone. They were likely to be broken up. They've got to go and defend something. Mm-hmm. Seems fairly unprepared. Yes, no, absolutely. He he is making an impromptu escape, the likes of which we have seen before. I mean, Basil Embry's escape was not wholly dissimilar to this. In a long marching column, he made a dash for it, in his case, when he saw the village of Embry. Good sign. Yes, exactly. Now, I'm, I'm not aware that Jones saw a village sign saying Jones. I think it's unlikely in northern France. Possibly. But... Nonetheless, you know, the opportunity presented itself along similar lines and he took it. And as you say, the fact that he had nothing on him didn't hinder his efforts as he guided himself by the stars. So he made his way towards Amiens, which he was to reach on the 1st of June, so a couple of days later, because he hoped it was still occupied by Allied troops. So he states, I was just about to knock at a window when I saw that German soldiers were asleep inside. Their motorbikes were parked in the yard. I walked out of Amiens and was actually passed on the road by a German convoy of about 50 vehicles. The troops in the convoy looked at me but took no notice, although I was still in British battle dress. I immediately took to the fields, but about half an hour later ran into a German NCO who levelled a Tommy gun at me and rounded me up. Now, wouldn't it have been amazing if we'd moved on from bicycle theft to motor bicycle theft? Absolutely. Even more so with him in British battle dress. Yes. Riding a German motorbike, that would have been amazing. You yes. got my hopes up there, but sadly failed. Alas. However, he was to be on the run for two days. Yes. Which is not bad. But northern France at this time, he's in Amiens. It's just going to be absolutely swarming with German troops. So it's interesting you said that he had a Tommy gun mm. pointed at him because the Tommy gun is obviously notoriously a American submachine gun, which therefore takes American ammunition. Mm-hmm. Not something that common, I would have thought, by the, the German armed forces to have one. But when, when we looked at that, maybe go and have a look at it up, and it seems that an awful lot was shipped over for the Spanish Civil War, which of mm-hmm. course Germany was very much involved with. So one would assume that this is a particularly unique item to have actually have turned up in France mm-hmm. to attack the British Expeditionary Force, but I guess only came from fact that so much had been shipped over for the Spanish Civil War must be captured. It, it just looked very interesting that it was obvious to him that it was a Tommy gun mm-hmm. and that he was arrested using it and a really weird weapon to turn up in that part of the world at that time but it must have come through that route. Yes, yeah, no, I think I think we have to assume that. So having been recaptured, he was then taken to a train and sent on to Belgium. And then from there, the, he was sent onwards through a transit camp onto another train to Lambsdorff. Now, again, we have come across Lambsdorff before in a number of our previous episodes. Please feel free to go back and listen to a wide number of them. Too many to list, really. But please feel free to go back and give them a listen. And at Lambsdorff, he was to be sent out into a number of different work camps from there and that was kind of to dominate his time at Lambsdorff and he was there from June 1940 until October 1942. Now I say he was there as I say he was in a number of satellite work camps rather than in Lambsdorff itself. Wasn't uncommon for prisoners of war to go out to a satellite camp, come back, go out to another one, come back or even move between the satellite camps but Lambsdorff was the central mothership for want of a better description. Yes. Through which he was operating. So the first one he went to was a working camp at Labande. 
and his job was to transport iron girders as the Germans were erecting several factories on the site. Around June 1941, he was sent out to a new work detail making roads. And during this period, there had been several attempts to escape, with men just walking away from their working parties, but invariably caught. But it still shows how much easier it was to escape from a working party than, say, a central camp. Now, Jones was to have an interesting time. So he goes into a little bit of detail in his escape report about what he got up to while he was in these working camps. He goes into a lot more detail in his book. Ah, So he has published a book, the uh, title of which will give away just how many escape attempts he Mm -hmm. made, because it is called At the Fifth Attempt. Yes. And as I say, there's a lot more detail in the book as to what he got up to and how he got up to it than there was in this escape report. Understandably so, because of course a book you have several hundred pages to play with. These escape reports are typically five to seven pages long. So his escape report says... In November 1941, Private Robert Stewart of the Cameron Highlanders and I managed to make contact with two Polish girls who were working nearby under German compulsion. We were able to arrange a meeting with them in an empty house. Stewart and I were able to break out of the camp on several occasions between December 41 and March 42 to meet these girls. Poles were given leave to go home periodically by the Germans and we were hoping to influence the girls to take us to Poland when they went on leave. Now his book actually gives names. Mm-hmm. And the two girls were called Selinka and Stasia. Okay. With Jones being involved with Selinka and Stuart mm-hmm. being involved with Stasia. Interesting. When you say involved, mm-hmm. what does that entail? So he doesn't give any smutty details, if oh, that's what you're not. asking. Okay. What he does say is that they were undoubtedly in a relationship to the point of while they couldn't be officially married, they did hold a marriage ceremony. Interesting. Hmm. He does say that they were both aware that it wasn't a real marriage ceremony, but they both treated it as such. I see. So it wasn't legally binding, there wasn't a minister, but they still treated it as a marriage ceremony and therefore, in their eyes, were legally married. Okay. So he goes on to state, Our method of getting out of the camp was watching the sentries and climbing over the wire, which was single-stranded, and then returning in the same way. We could easily have escaped this way, but had no intention of doing so as yet. I wonder what their motivation for that was. Hanging around, it seems. Yes, Two young Polish ladies. Yes. We wanted the girls to procure us civilian clothes and make all preparations until the time should be ripe to get away. About March 1942, we were detected returning to the camp and were punished with extra parades. In August 42, Stuart was moved on, and in October 42, I myself was sent to Pilch. Now, what this escape report doesn't tell us is that actually he'd been told by Stasia that Selinka had died. So having been sent to another camp, effectively he just gets on with it. Right, okay. I almost get the impression that escape was something of a distraction for him. Right, yeah, that's understandable. And something to focus his mind on and something he committed himself to several more times. So having arrived at his new camp, he was employed in loading sugar beet into trucks. But that was terminated after he struck the overseer, which is not usually a good career move to strike a Nazi guard. No. We've seen that before, though, haven't we? We have, yep. Now, he does say that no charges brought against him as the guard had been bribed with chocolates and cigarettes. Okay. So it sounds like the guard decided discretion was the better part of valour. I I see. And felt that pressing charges was not necessary. And so from there, they were moved on to another working camp, this time working in the sugar factory itself. He found this camp quite difficult to get out of, I imagine because he's located inside a factory as opposed to out in the fields or out in the yard or something like that. It was much harder to escape because you're contained and also still under guard. 
And so he tried to get himself sent back to Lambsdorff, as in the main camp itself, and declared himself sick and was sent to the medical officer who he managed to persuade that there was TB in the family, which was quite remarkable given that the medical officer made absolutely no examination of him and just signed off on it. So on to his second escape attempt. So he was to make this in December 1942 when he was again sent out into a working party in Munsterberg. They were employed loading coal at a cement works and they are a private bell, guardsman mills and Jones planned to escape. Now they were billeted in the house with some German guards which had bars over the windows but they discovered that there was a door which enabled them to access the roof next door. Now while this had an iron bolt across it they found that they were able to cut out the wood and remove the bolt. They'd also managed to remove the lettering of Kriegsgefangener, which of course means prisoner of war in German, which was stamped on their working overalls and sewn a patch over them and dyed with indelible pencil. And they'd also been able to procure a compass from one of the German civilians working in the factory. So they've managed to get passable clothes and a compass this time, which is an improvement on his last effort, which was guiding by stars. But of course, we're two and a half years later into the war, so the opportunity to start building up something of an escape kit is a bit more prevalent. And while it's not the most extensive escape, kit I've ever seen, you can see the impact that time allows in making an escape effort. So having been sent to this new camp in December 1942, it wasn't until April 1943 that they were able to make their escape. So with another prisoner of war keeping watch, they managed to remove this iron bar, get onto the roof and drop down into the road at about 9 o'clock at night. Now the plan was to go south to Yugoslavia. They managed to cross the river Nysa and continued walking south and were lying up by day. And they then crossed the Czechoslovakian frontier at Mitovalda, which is around about 75 kilometres from Munsterberg. So making decent progress here. At Sternberg, which is another 75 kilometres on from the border, they were accosted by a gamekeeper who asked them for their papers. Now, they tried to say that they were Bulgarians who'd been working in Germany and were returning home, but the gamekeeper didn't believe him and took them to the mayor. The mayor, who was inclined to believe their story at first, sent for the police and eventually they had to admit their identity. So they managed to travel around about 150 kilometres this time, which is much better going. But having been recaptured, they were then sent on to a punishment camp in a quarry at Königswalde. They were there for a fortnight before being sent back to Munsterberg. Now, while there, he actually refused to work and so he was given no food for three days, but he eventually stuck out and was sent instead to the cells for 14 days as his punishment. So in June 1943, he was then sent to work at a sawmill in Sandovitz, but not being able to find any opportunity to escape. From there, he again feigned sickness and was sent back to Lambsdorff. So his mind really is fixed upon escape. Oh, absolutely. He's obsessed with it. And every time he goes to a working camp, if he can't see an immediate escape opportunity, he basically fakes sickness, gets sent back to the main camp in order to be sent out to another of the satellite camps. And Lambsdorff is a major... It is, yes. ...major prisoner of war camp, so there would have been a lot of satellite camps attached to it. But he really is focused on getting out. So in August of that year, so August 1943, he was then sent to work at a sugar factory at Ratibor. And there, a Pole and Jones planned to get away. The Pole had managed to obtain some German money, but just as the plan was maturing, the Pole got nervous and gave Jones 100 Reichmarks. Now, that in and of itself wasn't hugely uncommon. Again, we've said before, those prisoners of war who had family in occupied countries, it wasn't unknown for them to shy away from escape because they didn't want to anger the Gestapo in their hometown and make their family a target by virtue of their escaping. So while I can't prove that's the reason why the poll backed out, it isn't an uncommon thing to happen and that was often the factor that caused them to do so. Nonetheless, he's now found himself with 100 Reichsmarks in his back pocket, so he's come out of it fairly well. Pretty, yeah, pretty good. So with two others, 
Marine Roberts of HMS Gloucester and Jenkins of HMS Bedouin, he planned to make his escape. So they managed to slip away at 06, 30 hours in the darkness in November 1943, just as a handover was taking place and they jumped over the factory wall into a road. Now from there they walked to Ratibor Station, bought tickets first for Hedebrick and then on to Gleivitz and then to Katowice. From Katowice they then took a tram to Sosnoviec. There they tackled two young Poles on the street and after chatting to them, they told them that they were British prisoners of war and asked if they could help us. They then took them to a camp in which French civilian workers were living. They were put up there for a couple of nights and advised by two Poles to go to Mishkov. We tackled a man in the street there and he took them to his house and they stayed there until dark before walking on in the direction of Warsaw. So arriving at a village, they approached the farm and said that they were Frenchmen. And the people there spoke fluent French and soon discovered that they weren't Frenchmen and eventually they had to admit their identity. The man then went out and returned with another man who said he was a Polish officer. So in effect, they were sat down and given a series of test questions to see if they were actually British. However, they managed to satisfy them that they were actually British and these Poles then provided them with an escort. I'm guessing these guys spoke a smattering of... Polish from their time with the girls. Yes, I mean, yeah, quite possibly. You use the yeah. opportunity, as well as many other things, to at least learn some of the local language, I would have thought, if you're looking to escape at some point, or maybe settle down in that country. Indeed, Who knows? Yes. Now, it turned out that these Poles were actually in the Polish partisan army. So what he actually ended up doing was joining the partisans Useful. in Poland. Yes, yes, exactly. So four days later, he joined up with some more Poles and... They were taken to a place called Lelov, where they were to wait for five days for another escort. While they were there, some of the other Brits that they were there with said that they didn't want to fight with the partisans, so they left, but Jones stayed on. So on the fifth day, the escort came along and collected them, and while they were being escorted to the next location, they ran into a band of Germans. So returning to his escape report, he says there was a short engagement in which several of the Poles were killed and wounded. Two Poles, as well as myself, managed to get away, and on the advice of the Poles, we made our way back to Lelov when, after four days of walking, we were picked up by some Germans. We were then taken to the police station and then to Oppeln for five days and then back to Lambsdorff, where we got 17 days in the cell. Now, again, the escape report doesn't give so much detail, but there's a little bit more in the book where he effectively says that they narrowly avoided being sent to the Gestapo. Ah, yes. Well, they are repeat offenders at this point. They are. In effect, the German interrogating them, if I recall correctly, basically states, I don't want to send you to the Gestapo. Be good, boys. And Mm -hmm. I won't. I get it. So he's now made three escape attempts and he's back at a work camp. So in many ways he hasn't made a great deal of progress, but he has made three efforts. So And he's already learned a lot about it. Yes, absolutely. So moving on to the fourth escape attempt. He states, on the 11th of January, I was sent to another working camp, which was in a slate quarry. After a few days, I again feigned sickness to get sent back to Lambsdorff. So he's, he's pulling the old trick out of yeah. the bag. Yeah. A couple of days later, they were sent out to another work camp where they were employed in digging foundations, and there were already several RAF personnel working there. A naval prisoner of war and I planned another escape. We dyed our battle dress trousers with indelible pencil and managed to steal a civilian jacket and a lumber jacket, so they've at least managed to pull together some possible clothes. There was already a pair of wire cutters in the camp, and on the 2nd of February, at a favourable opportunity when the sentry was away from his position on the beat, we cut the wire and got out. 
from there they walked to Gleivitz, reaching it that night. And they then bought tickets to Katowice and went by train to Sosnovich and back to the French civilian camp where they had visited on the previous occasion. So they're going back for help. They're basically retracing their steps to go and get some more help. Which doesn't seem wholly unreasonable given we're in February 44 just now and they'd been there as recently as late November, early December. Mm -hmm. So it's only a couple of months later. The next day they managed to make contact with the same Poles that they'd spoken to before. And this time they told them that they didn't want to join the Partisan Army but wanted to take a train to Danzig and attempt to board the Swedish ship. These young Poles managed to collect 150 German Reichmarks for them to use. So having bought tickets for Danzig and narrowly missed a train by about 30 seconds, they were left waiting on the platform. So because they had a bit of a wait, they decided to try and enter a lavatory to be less conspicuous and were just about to do so when they were hailed by two Gestapo men. They tried to tell them that, that they were French workers at a nearby factory and stopping off at the civilian camp, but when the Gestapo checked up on this, they found it was untrue and they therefore had to reveal their true identities. And bear in mind that they'd only narrowly avoided being sent to the Gestapo the last time. They are now being captured by the Gestapo. And we are literally weeks away from the Great Escape when we know that the attitude of the Gestapo towards prisoners of war were going to change quite considerably. So Indeed. So having been captured, he actually got lucky and got off quite lightly. And he was sent to Stalag 8B on the 7th of February and given 21 days in the cells. So in a surprising twist of fate, the Gestapo have been relatively lenient to him. Not something that we often see. No, we, we often see 21 days as a fairly standard punishment for escaping, isn't it? Yes, but where the Gestapo are involved, we got off quite lightly, as I say. So on to the fifth and final escape attempt. So back at Lambsdorff, he had managed to make contact with an escape committee for the first time. Oh, right. And this was to actually make quite a big difference. Well, actually, yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that he was doing all these other ones off his own back, wasn't mm-hmm. he, up until now? Yeah, interesting. So he states, I managed to get in touch through a friend of mine with the RAF people in the camp who were preparing escape identity cards. The condition he was given, because of course he's not in the RAF, but he's made contact with an RAF escape committee, which is clearly some sort of internal office politics for want I've, of a better I was, description. I was, I was trying to work out a way of saying, was it down to the RAF to organise anything then, that the army just didn't bother, they just took their opportunity. But then I suppose it's all an NCO camp, mm-hmm. and obviously you're going to get a lot of airmen in these stalags, mm-hmm. quite obviously, but yeah, you're going to get them in, in a mixture of other working camps as well, obviously. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, he's deliberately said it's the Royal Air Force that are seemingly coordinating things within the camp. Yes, or at least this escape committee is for the RAF, prisoners of war. So he says that the condition that he was given, if he was to get a card from them, was that he should also take an RAF prisoner of war with him. So cards were made out for Flight Sergeant Cowell and himself, and they were each given 100 Reichmarks to be divided between them by the escape committee. So already you can see that the resources of an escape committee are making a bit of a difference. He's Mm. now got papers, he's now got money, and he was to build up a bit more of an escape kit. So the two of them were sent out on a working party to Dershow on the 5th of April. And by this time, he had obtained a pair of RAF trousers and a lumber jacket. However, they'd find it impossible to procure a second suit of civilian clothes, and as it was deemed that Jones, as the inveterate escaper, had a better chance of getting away, and owing to his knowledge of German as well, it was agreed that Jones should actually make the escape alone. So he's managed to procure himself some papers and some money on the basis that he'd be taking out an RAF escaper with them. Mm -hmm. But he's then managed to convince the RAF escaper to let him go by himself. 
Over and above that, at a previous camp, he had managed to procure from a Czech a hacksaw blade, which he'd also managed to hide. And with this, he managed to half saw through two of the bars in the room in which he slept. And on the night of the 17th of April, he pushed out the bars and let himself down with a rope, which he'd made by tying some skipping ropes together. From there, he walked to Opel and took a train to Breslau and changed here and went on to Frankfurt. On the train from Breslau to Frankfurt, his identity and papers were examined and passed. So already, again, we can see the difference good papers are making. Absolutely. And so I go back to what I said earlier. By making contact with an escape committee for the first time, we're seeing a difference that the resources escape committee can apply to an escape in that his papers have been checked and passed. They were clearly very good papers. From Frankfurt, he then took a train to Stettin. Now, having reached Frankfurt, he's already travelled 330 kilometres. And he then reached Stettin at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon of the 17th of April. So this is the same day he's actually broken out. He's already reached Stettin, which is a further 140 kilometres away. So he's travelled a total of 470 kilometres. However, from the camp to Stettin is only about 450, but he's taken a little bit of a circular route in that he's gone slightly west to Frankfurt and then back east again and north of course to Stettin but because that's the train route and the advantage of the trains and getting away quickly he's in effect got to Stettin 450 kilometers away by two o'clock the afternoon of the same day he escaped so it's worth taking the circular route in this it is it is so having arrived in Stettin, he states, I accosted some poles on the street and asked where I might be able to make contact with some Swedish sailors. In breaking news, it was recommended that he could make contact with some Swedish sailors in a brothel. So he was given the address of a brothel in the Harbour District. I mean, honestly, if you need to ask, yes. like, could you not have just asked, where's the nearest it prostitute? <laughs> So having reached the brothel, he asked the girl here if she knew of any Swedish sailors and she said that she had an appointment with one that evening. So a meeting was arranged and the Swedish sailor then took him straight back to his ship. A German guard who was on the quayside chatted with the Swede and for some reason did not ask me for my pass, so we rowed out to the ship which was lying midstream. Once they got aboard, he found that the ship was not sailing for at least a couple of days, so the sailor put him into his own bed while the sailor slept on the floor. There was another man in the cabin and he was the only other person who knew of his presence that night. And the next morning, one other member of the crew, the mess man, who brought food down to the cabin, also got to know that I was aboard. So he's making really rapid progress here. Yes. Um, And you're talking a couple of days, aren't we? Well, he escaped on the 17th of April. By that evening, he is lying in the cabin on a Swedish ship. Yeah, it's a coast of Stettin. Yeah, it's really good. Still in the harbour, admittedly. Now, he was to wait there a couple of days. He'd been told a rumour that the ship was not sailing for another month and began to question whether he had to move to another ship that night. However, he remained in the cabin as one of the men thought the rumour could not be true. And on the 20th of April, the ship was then moved to the coaling quay to take on coal, which was to take about 24 hours. So on the morning of the 21st of April, he knew that they would be sailing, and so his friends moved him down to the water ballast tanks at about 0500 hours on the 21st. Now, for those who don't know, the ballast tanks were to help keep the ship afloat when it was empty, because of course when it's full of coal, Mm. it sits quite nicely in the water, because that's what it's designed to take. But when it's empty, it sort of bobs around like a cork. It's not displacing enough to... Exactly. So they put water in the ballast tanks in order to weigh it down and give it more ballast. Mm. But of course, now that they've got coal on board, they can empty the ballast tanks, which gives a perfect hiding location for an escape prisoner of war, you might say. So a manhole was opened on the top of the tank and Jones got in. Now, unfortunately, there were a couple of inches of water at the bottom in which he had to sit and the manhole cover was screwed back down above him. 
So having been screwed back into the ballast tank, which must have been cold, wet and dark. Very dark. Mm. He was told to remain there until they fetched him. He was in the ballast tank until about 2200 hours that night when they came to collect him. But they had set sail at around about 4.30 that afternoon. Oh, so they're already out to sea. They're already out to sea. And he would have felt that and known that. Should have done, yes. Nonetheless, he was placed in the ballast tank at 5 o'clock in the morning and wasn't released until 10 o'clock at night. That's a long time to be placed down there. In wet pitch black. Yeah, I mean, he was still having to wait nearly 12 hours until they sailed. So even though, as you say, he would have felt them going out to sea, mm -hmm. still 12 hours that he's waiting for that. Yeah. And then another five and a half hours after that until he was released. Not a pleasant experience. No. But it's also not the first time that we've seen people escaping by ship to Sweden having to go through unpleasant Awful experiences. Things, yeah. Or lying under boilers and things. Mm. Don't like it. Or in piles of coal. Mm. All, none of it sounds pleasant. Now he states, I heard later that the Germans had searched the ship for about two hours. My sailor friends told me that the search was a particularly thorough one as the Germans appeared to think that somebody was on board. How could they have thought that? Suspicious. I went from the ballast tank back to the cabin and remained here until the early morning of the 23rd of April, where I was hidden underneath the boiler as the ship was nearing Stockholm, where a custom search would take place. I was anxious to reach the British legation without any Swedish authorities knowing I was on board. So once they docked at Stockholm at about 3 o'clock on the 23rd of April, he then moved back to the cabin around 10 o'clock that night and didn't leave the ship until the evening of the 24th. So he effectively sat in the ship in dock for another day. He was then given civilian clothes by one of the sailors and the passport and taken ashore. One of the seamen then accompanied him to the British legation and the following day he reported to the British military attaché. Although it took him one whole day to get to Stettin and on board the ship, it took him another five days to actually reach Stockholm itself. So he reached Stockholm six days after his escape and he would leave Stockholm on the 8th of May 1944, three weeks after his escape, and nearly exactly four years after his capture on the 23rd of May 1940. Interesting. Mm. Uh, really interesting. Uh, what a rapid escape, though, to get up to the, mm. the port in just one day. After four previous attempts. <laughs> Indeed. He was certainly a keen escaper. I didn't manage to find anything else about any wartime service, but I did find quite a bit, actually, about him. As you say, he wrote a book in later life. What we do know is he returned to Dolgethai and he became a policeman for a short period of time before then becoming a teacher okay. at the Dr. Williams School. And then he returned back to farming, which he had done you know, when he left school himself. Locals said that he walked like a soldier, even in old age, and was very forthright in his views. He certainly ran into the locals and perhaps his past as a policeman meant he didn't uh, suffer fools gladly. Because there's one story that goes around the local area that he saw a man beating a dog with a stick politely asked the man to stop, who then ignored him. So he laid him out in a single punch, even in old age. So he certainly enforced his will upon things, mm. should we say, going forward. But considering he did leave school so early, he actually went on to teach himself many languages. We obviously understand his smattering of Polish, which probably became quite extensive. He also learned German and Russian, because whilst, as you say, he wrote his book, he wrote many other volumes of autobiographies, and he translated about a dozen books from German and Polish into Welsh. Okay. Now, his book is interesting, At the Fifth Attempt. So he wrote his book, At the Fifth Attempt, and it got published. And he happened to be at an event many decades later, and he spoke to a fairly well-known actor called Meredith Edwards, who was very prominent in the 50s and 60s as an actor. 
and he said, oh, I've just written this book. It's a really entertaining story about a prisoner of war who escapes five times and marries a Polish girl called Selinka. And Meredith said, well, he wants to see about getting that made into a film. Well, it did get made into a film. Okay. Not that long ago. I cannot find it anywhere. Right. It's really frustrating. Is This is on IMDb, and it was called Bride of War. And it was made in English, and it was shot on location in Poland. And they also did a Welsh version. Right. So it was subtitled, but it was actually largely filmed in Poland as well. And they used the Polish army for the battle scenes. And it was apparently a tremendous success. Now... I've seen it listed as being serialised in several parts, and it was actually premiered at the Welsh Film Festival in Aberystwyth in 1998. Okay. I can't find it on YouTube. I've seen stills from it, and I've seen the poster that advertises it. I cannot find it anywhere. I would love to see a copy. I really would love to see a copy. But it was put out there, and it was also shown in Poland. Okay. And that's where this takes a very interesting and somewhat sad twist because it was shown in 1999 in Poland. And John would then receive a letter from a man saying he was the son of Selinka. Right. So if you remember, Stasia had said that after these guys had been caught, she'd been taken away and she died. Well, apparently that didn't happen. She was taken away and she was put into a prison camp where she fell unconscious. And she was actually taken to the mortuary as presumably about to die or having had died. But she regained consciousness and recovered completely and remained in Poland. But unfortunately, behind the Iron Curtain. And she always hoped, apparently, that one day, because she never married, she did have a son, but she never married, and she hoped that one day the curtain would lift and she'd be able to go and find John. But she passed away in 1990 at the age of 69, just before the wall came down. So she was never able to actually get out from behind the Iron Curtain. Jones did actually find out that she'd survived. I can't say his reaction was particularly good about it, as one would expect, because mm. he said there's nothing he could do, because he found out nine years after she passed away that she'd actually lived. But as you said, always considered that they had been married, for want of a better word, even though it wasn't legal. Jones himself, he passed away on the 25th of September 2008, aged 88. But I thought it was particularly interesting that the story would be so widespread so mm. later on, mm-hmm. and that it obviously made a fabulous film, but to have it shown in Poland as well with the support of the Polish authorities and then actually find that your wife that you took when you were 21 years old mm-hmm. actually had survived and waited for you for the rest of her life, I thought was particularly sad. No, absolutely does come across in the book just how upset he was by it and as I say he almost threw himself into his escape efforts as a distraction Mm. from the loss that he clearly felt and it was very clear in the book that he did take it seriously and and while it may not have been a legal marriage in, in the eyes of the law you know no marriage certificate was signed he definitely felt that they both treated it as a marriage in name if not in the eyes of the law. Yeah. There is one other detail about the book that actually I'm not sure why he does it, but the book is published under the name of John Elwin, not John Elwin Jones. Interesting. It is otherwise the same story. Obviously there's more detail in the book, but I couldn't find any major or minor deviations in, in detail in that sense. And the name Elwin is the middle name he gives in his escape report, but I'm not sure why he publishes the book under the name John Elwin rather than John Elwin Jones, but John Elwin Jones is the name that is given in this escape report. And the book is still available? Still available, yes. Excellent. So it's just Bride of War we have to try and find. Yes. So if anybody out there has a link, a copy... I mean, we're only talking 20 years ago. Mm. I certainly couldn't find it digitally anywhere. I couldn't find it secondhand anywhere. But 
it's a film I'd really like to see. Ideally in English. Uh, yeah, ideally in English. <laughs> I'll do subtitles though. Yeah. I, I'm quite happy with subtitle films. But yeah, we would certainly like to see copies of this. Yes, absolutely. If if we could get it. So an appeal to you all. Yes, please do get in touch if anyone knows anything more about the film Bride at War. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.